Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello everyone and welcome to Hidden Histories. Today's podcast is with the prolific writer, journalist, historian and broadcaster, Dan Jones. Dan is the king of medieval history, and he has a totally unique and absorbing way of bringing history to life in his page-turning books. He's not only a talented writer and historian, but an all-round great guy who keenly supports new writers like myself and many others. He's covered the 12th, 13th, 14th and 15th centuries, tackling some of the most expansive and complex aspects of the Middle Ages. And now he's released his new book an epic narrative history of the Crusades, in which Dan confronts some of the existing myths around crusading and also introduces some previously unheard of characters. He barely needs an introduction, but here he is. I hope you enjoy the podcast and don't forget to rate and subscribe. Hey, Dan Jones, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you. And we're here to talk about your brand new book, Crusaders which is all about sort of, it's a potted history, well, not even really a potted history, a very expansive history of... of it's a very large pot that <laughs> this history is in, but yeah. An expansive history of the Crusades through time. So starting right at the beginning, what were the Crusades? Well, the word crusade, I suppose, is one that we're familiar with because it's stuck around a long time. So... You hear the word crusades bandied about an awful lot by an awful lot of people. And those people range from, I can remember a few years ago, and this feels like history now, but but put that aside. David Cameron, when he was prime minister, if you can remember such a time. I remember him declaring that he was leading a crusade to get more houses built. Or you, you know, you sometimes see local councillors saying they're going on a sort of crusade against litter. Or equally, you see Islamic State declaring that the Crusades are still going on when they blow people up with bombs, that this is a strike against the Crusaders. So the word Crusade is one that we're, we're very familiar with, is my point. Now, what are we referring to when we talk about the Crusades, or a Crusade, as an analogy? The Crusades, very broadly put, were a series of wars, legitimized and in many cases declared, if you like, by the Roman Church 
during the Middle Ages. The Crusades that are most famous are the, are the, the sort of mass, quote-unquote, multinational campaigns that went from Western Europe to Jerusalem and the Holy Lands, that were very broadly defined, um, Greater Syria, Egypt, Palestine, with the city of Jerusalem at their heart. Between the, the very end of the 11th century and in the case of the Holy Land and, and you know, the, the Near East, um, the end of the 13th century. But there were lots of other crusades that over the, the course of that period um, be, sort of sprang out of the idea of crusading. The idea of crusading was that if you joined in these wars, that uh, it was penitential, that you went and fought and your reward for going and fighting in the name of Christ uh, and on the say-so of the Pope was spiritual salvation in the form of remission of sins. So if you've done all sorts of terrible things or even not so terrible things, then if you confessed them and went on crusade, then you know your reward would be a faster path into heaven or through purgatory. So after the, the, the crusades, the Holy Land became kind of a thing. You have lots of, uh, of spin-off crusades. If you imagine um, the main crusade of Jerusalem being the Avengers, then you have lots of different sort of, you know, um, Thor movies and um, Spider-Man and whatever. I don't even know if Spider-Man is an Avenger. Put that aside. Coming out of it. So you have crusades that are aimed against pagans in the Baltic. You have crusades that are aimed against heretics in southern France. You have crusades that are aimed against just sort of generic enemies of the Pope, you know, particularly uh, thinking of the Hohenstaufen dynasty of Holy Roman Emperors and German Kings. There is a crusade in 1202 to 4 that ends up sacking, that fourth crusade ends up sacking Constantinople. It, it diverts from its mission to attack Muslims in um, Egypt to uh, Greek Christians in declining Byzantine Empire. So there are lots of different manifestations of crusade, but, but at its heart, the idea is in the, in the Middle Ages, there are a series of religious wars authorised by the, the Pope in Rome, offering participants remission of sins. And who was it that first introduced the idea of crusading? Well, this is something that's caused historians to tug their, their beards or, or stroke their, their beardless chins for many generations. Most... Obviously, and most famously, in 1095, Pope Urban II pitched up at Clermont in France and gave a sermon in which he announced this idea of crusading, penitential war. And he called for, there are various descriptions of what Urban said at Clermont, none of them entirely or wholly trustworthy or accurate or verifiable. But he, he called for people of the West, good Christian soldiers of the West, to rise up and march east, firstly towards Constantinople, where the Greek emperor, the Byzantine Empire, was under attack by Turks, Turkish people moving east through Asia Minor. And thereafter, it was projected that this crusade, which became the first crusade, would go on to Jerusalem, which was held at that time by Fatimids, by you know Shiite dynasty of um, Egyptian um, caliphs. So this, was, this is kind of the moment at which crusading first seems to burst into life. And most books that deal with crusading usually take urban appearing Clermont as their, as their starting point. Um, however, as historians have, have noted, these sort of things don't just come out of nowhere. And there are lots of strands that you have to sort of follow to understand where crusading came from. And some of them are to do with 
clashes around the Mediterranean between Christians and Muslims that have been going on for you know for centuries really, but but particularly for for in the decades between the 1060s through to the 1090s. So where I start my book Crusaders is in Sicily in the 1060s with the Normans who we you know, more famously think of in the 1060s, taking over England, well, had also invaded Sicily and had, had pushed out the Arab rulers from Sicily and, and subjected the island of Sicily and areas of southern Italy to Norman rule. So there'd been clashes there between Christian warriors and Arab Muslims around, you know, in the Mediterranean. And there'd been some support, although it, it was not wholehearted support for the Normans in Sicily from the papacy, uh, who were sometimes at war with the Normans as well. You had, of course, a great theatre of crusading, um, as it turned out, would be in Spain and Portugal. So you had the beginnings of the Reconquista in you know 1060s, 1070s. There were um, there were clashes in central Spain between the rulers of the Muslim Taifa kingdoms of southern Spain and the rulers of the small Christian kingdoms of northern Spain. There were rifts within the Christian world of the West. So there had been tension between popes and secular rulers, um, particularly German emperors in the period leading up to, uh, to Urban II's declaration of crusade, which, which the crusade was in some ways designed to heal. And there'd also been a schism between the Western church and the Eastern church, which Urban was trying to bridge um, in going to help uh, the Byzantine emperor, who had also requested Western help. So what I'm trying to say is that there are these this sort of mass of different tensions and forces and and pulls in the decades that lead up to 1095 that all they're all drawn together by Urban II when he he creates or appears to create announces uh, that he is calling for good Christian soldiers to go east. That but that 1095 is probably the moment where crusading first bursts onto the historical scene. And then as it progressed through the, through the ages, do you think that crusaders were also using it to their advantage territorially as well? So there's sort of, there's lots of little examples of crusades being announced, but is that, was that often, do you think, in the case of territorial war or, you know, trying to mm. expand land rights, yeah. etc.? So if we take it in, in kind of sequence, at the beginning of the period I'm describing, um, you really have two sort of opposing examples. If we think about the First Crusade, announced in 1095 by Urban II, begins kind of 1096 and culminates on the 15th of July 1099 with the fall of Jerusalem to the First Crusaders. Uh, there, there is really a major spiritual component to motivating most of the participants from the West, I think. This idea that a new form of penitential warfare has kind of been invented and is being popularized is in incredibly appealing. And I think a lot of people who joined the first crusade did so not necessarily the expectations that they were going to go and carve out new estates for themselves in the East. Although, although subsequently that is what happened. I think that there was a, a sort of major spiritual driver, which was that it is both the right thing to do, personally and spiritually, and the right thing to do for the broader Christian world, to go on this kind of crazy adventure towards Constantinople and, and Jerusalem. You can look at the flip side of it, however, in Spain and Portugal, which I mentioned a moment or two ago, where 
these wars for kind of territory, resources, land, kingdoms, bishoprics uh, that was going on in Spain was sort of sanctified by a stamp of approval from the papacy. So that had there not been the concept of crusading in 1095, I think it's very hard, and I mean crusading in its sort of spiritual penitential form, it's very hard to imagine the first crusade happening. However, it's very easy to imagine all the same wars still taking place in Spain and Portugal. So there are always, as it turns out, through the, the centuries that followed, the, these two dimensions to crusading. And you can look at some crusades that take place. Take the second crusade in the 1140s, when the, the crusader city, major crusader city of Edessa, um, fell to uh, Turkish conquerors. And that sparked an enormous wave of um, kind of self-doubt, introspection, and, and revived martial ambition in the West, which turned into another major overland crusade, albeit a disastrous one. Again, in that case, I, I don't think many people went on the Second Crusade thinking, well, well, we'll get Edessa back and then you know, we'll all share in the, in the, in the bounty. Um, that, would, that would be a, a very unlikely ambition, um, and certainly secondary to defending the greater honour of Christendom. Uh, however, around the same time, in fact, a lot of the Second Crusaders who were in the 1140s were on their way by sea to Jerusalem from northwest Europe. Well, they stopped off in Lisbon and helped Alfonso Henriques, the first king of Portugal, to conquer Lisbon. And, and in doing that, they were very much taking part in really a purely territorial war. Alfonso Henriques was expanding the county of Portugal, had to become the kingdom of Portugal, and was in the process basically of seizing estates and land and cities. Uh, again, something that we can very easily imagine happening, even had there not been a crusade going on. It was just sort of uh, it, was, it was good timing for Afonso and Lucas that this, uh, this crusade happened. So I think all the way through, you know, and we can fast forward to, to sort of later in the period and see, you know, when the Teutonic Knights, the German military order, appear in the Baltic and start conquering there. On the one hand, joining the Teutonic Knights and, and fighting with them for a season or two, as people like Henry Bolingbroke, future Henry IV, King of England, did, is a sort of spiritual, uh, a pious military, martial, chivalrous act. Um, but on the other hand, there's a, there is a purely territorial ambition to the Teutonic Knights being in, in the pagan Baltic that's, that goes beyond just converting or, or killing people and is about expanding, um, expanding secular territories. So I think you see this all the way through the history of Crusading, the tension between the spiritual drivers on the one hand and the, the base territorial ambitions on the other and sometimes they can be easily separated and sometimes they're, they're all part of the same phenomenon. Okay so going back the first the first crusade that was you think largely driven by conventional piety rather than any sort of desire to develop um, territory. So what happened in that first crusade? Well the, the bare bones of the first crusade are this um, following Urban's Sermon at Claremont in 1095, and an extended preaching tour by Urban himself and lots of uh, lots of papal papal sponsored preachers around France, the Rhineland, um, you know, Northwest Europe, bits of Italy. There is an unexpectedly massive popular take up of crusading. So the first wave that sets out from Europe in the direction and the very broad direction of the Holy Land is led by a man called Peter the Hermit and various other kind of demagogue preacher types 
who really leap on this idea of penitential warfare, who leap on the idea of going and attacking Muslims or indeed any other non-Christians they can lay their hands on. There's a spate of sort of what we would now call populist demagoguery. Uh, lots of people decide to join the Crusades. In the Rhineland, you see an enormous amount of rioting against Jews uh, within cities of the Rhineland. And uh, then Peter the Hermit and, and Pals set off through eastwards through Europe, down the Danube, into the Balkans, towards Constantinople, uh, and along the way cause an enormous amount of trouble and end up heavily depleted in numbers by the time they get to Constantinople because they keep upsetting everybody they come across and being sort of um, periodically butchered. Behind them comes another wave of more organised crusaders, the sort of crusaders that Urban had envisaged. When Urban announced the First Crusade, his intention was not that every Tom, Dick and Harry would go. The idea was that trained warriors were being called upon to go and, and serve in the East. And that's more or less how we can characterise the second wave of crusaders within this First Crusade, who are conventionally termed by historians as the Prince's Crusade. And this was led by major noblemen, although not kings, uh, from various different parts of Europe. So you had people like Godfrey of Bouillon and um, Baldwin of Boulogne, who are brothers from you know, northwest France, Flanders way. You have um, larger-than-life characters like Beaumont of Toronto, who was a you know, great Norman leader from who was based in southern Italy. You have uh, Raymond, Count of Toulouse, great French southern lord. Um, Bishop Adamer of Le Puy, who was uh, you know, the, sort of the Pope's representative in, as the kind of legate spiritual leader of the crusade they all set off somewhat later arrive in constantinople towards the end of 1096 are greeted there by the byzantine emperor um, alexios the first comnenos who has got has bitten off rather more than he can chew he realizes when he sees sees all this these people start to arrive they're, they're sort of shuttled across the bosphorus into asia minor and, and there begin a march across the whole of asia minor modern anatolia you know, Turkey, and along the way have some rather hair-raising adventures. So there are large military engagements at Nicaea, uh, an enormous battle at Dorylaeum. Both of these are won by the Crusaders. Uh, and eventually they descend in 1097, end of 1097, down to Antioch, which is northern Syria, sort of gateway from Turkey into Syria, cities there's not much to see there of the original city anymore. At Antioch, there are two sieges. Firstly, the Crusaders besiege Antioch. Then they get into Antioch and are themselves besieged within Antioch and break out of the siege, win another battle. And from then on, they really get into their heads that having won all these amazing against-the-odds battles, that they really have got God on their side. And you can kind of forgive them for believing that. Because this is really, even to the point where they reach Antioch, an extraordinary campaign. They had no right to be as successful as it was, given the hardships of the weather, the, you know, the length of the march, the number of different people who were all involved in this campaign, the number of non-combatants they were carrying, and so on and so forth. From Antioch, there's a march early in 1099 down south through Syria towards Palestine, and to, to cut a long and quite dramatic story short... In July 1099, the crusading army, what's left of it, besieges Jerusalem and manages 
to take it. And there's a, a massacre described by chroniclers um, in biblical terms, in you know, with with obvious reference to the Book of Revelations, the idea of, of people, you know, Crusader knights riding through Jerusalem with blood up to the bridles of their horses, a massacre of Jews, massacre of the Muslim inhabitants of Jerusalem. A very sorry sight, but one that ends with Jerusalem in Christian hands for the first time in centuries and eventually a Latin, first a protector and then a king of Jerusalem appointed um, to rule, as it turns out, um, a sort of feudal style kingdom in the east. So that's the course of the First Crusade in its bare bones. And I suppose what what you've got to remember all the way through, I mean, as always with with these kind of events in history, if you know the outcome, it all seems inevitable. But what's amazing when you read or when you write about the First Crusade is that every sage, well, this shouldn't have worked. And it gets more and more and more and more and more and more and more unlikely until eventually, by the time the Crusaders have, have taken Jerusalem and are sort of ensconced there and defending it with army, as armies ride up from Egypt to try and kick them out, you think, well, I, I can totally understand why these people must have believed that God was right in their corner wanting them to do this because this just shouldn't have worked, but it did. And you, so who else was on, who else went on the Crusades? You mentioned that it wasn't just the warriors that they actually had. Was it women and were children on Crusade or was it largely just these, this fighting force? I think throughout the history of Crusading, uh, what you, you see, if you look closely enough, is a surprising number of people went crusading who were not a sort of typical image of crusaders, which is, you know, by and large, a Templar knight. That's the kind of popular image of a crusader today. So, in fact, what, I, what I've tried to do in, in the book Crusaders, and the, the clue is in the title, is, is, is proceed by way of pen portraits of people who took part. And when I was kind of casting you know, populating the book. I was looking for people who were sort of off the usual beaten track of crusading history. So I'll give you an example of somebody who I think is probably my favourite, or one of my favourite crusaders in the book. And that's a woman called Margaret of Beverly, who was involved in the Third Crusade. That's the Richard the Lionheart Saladin Crusade at the end of the 12th century. So Margaret of Beverly, born in Jerusalem, because her parents had been on pilgrimage when she was born. And the Beverly, as you know, is, is in northern England. So Margaret Beverly is born in Jerusalem, but then they take her back to England. She grows up in Beverly. She has a younger, much younger brother, Thomas. So when her parents die, uh, she helps raise Thomas. Thomas becomes a Cistercian monk. And at that point, Margaret, who's in her sort of late teens, or maybe early 20s, more realistically, uh, decides that she's going back to Jerusalem. She's going to go on her own pilgrimage to the place of her birth. Unfortunately, when she ends up, when she winds up in Jerusalem, it's 1187. And in 1187, the Christian king of Jerusalem, King Guy I, had just lost, you know, an apocalyptically huge battle against Saladin, Sultan of Egypt and Syria, great Kurdish general. So in 1187, King Guy of Jerusalem had lost an apocalyptically huge battle to Saladin, the great Sultan of Egypt and Syria. And Saladin's army, Saladin's dynasty was known as the Ayyubids, so an Ayyubid army was outside the walls of Jerusalem laying siege to the city. 
Inside the city, Margaret of Beverly uh, realised that there was trouble. Now, there weren't many soldiers. There was barely a, a skeleton garrison in Jerusalem because all the troops had been taken to fight the battle against Saladin, the Battle of Hattin, which had been lost. So most of them were either in prison or dead. So very few defenders of Jerusalem. So everyone was called to the wars, and this includes Margaret of Beverly. And there's this great description of Margaret of Beverly on the walls of Jerusalem with a slingshot in her hand, a saucepan on her head as a helmet, <laughs> and a borrowed sort of coat of mail or breastplate that she's wearing, uh, sort of hurling rocks down from the walls of Jerusalem at Saladin's um, men below. When Jerusalem eventually fell, as it did, Saladin, unlike the first Crusaders, did not order a general massacre. Instead, he uh, allowed the Christian inhabitants of Jerusalem to buy their freedom at a set price negotiated with the Christian rulers of Jerusalem. And if you could buy your freedom, you were allowed to go. Margaret of Beverly scraped together the ransom for her freedom, uh, and she off she went. So she went out, I think, of the Jaffa Gate. Or, you know, she leaves Jerusalem. And within about six kilometers, she's captured. She's taken prisoner, and she's enslaved. And she's put to work for about 18 months, um, you know, in chains, doing hard labor. Not a very nice prospect if you've been to, to Palestine, the height of summer or the depth of winter, uh, quite an uncomfortable prospect. So, but this, unfortunately, is Margaret Beverly's lot. However, God smiles upon her about 18 months after her captivity, when a wealthy merchant from the city of Tyre, which is on the coast, you know, in what was then the Kingdom of Jerusalem, decides that he's going to celebrate, uh, I forget, it's either his, his son's birthday or wedding day or something similar. Anyway, he's got cause for celebration. So he says, I'm going to buy some slaves and free them. So he does this and Margaret of Beverly escapes. But as, as she later says, this was even worse than being enslaved because now I had no food and nothing but rags. So I just wandered around the Holy Land trying to survive until eventually she manages to find her way back to uh, to Acre, to the Acre, the main port of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and she takes ship home. And as it happens, she goes home with the kind of sailing that carries Richard the Lionheart home, because at the same time as all the events I've been describing, Richard the Lionheart and Saladin are fighting the kind of famous battles of the Third Crusade, uh, which have been you know much storied and drawn in cartoons and TV shows over the years. So the reason I tell you all that is to say that there are ways of looking at the Crusades that are not the conventional ways. So the usual way you tell the story of the Third Crusade is to say that um, you know you, you take the point of Jerusalem falling and then turn your attention immediately to the West and say, oh, and in the West there was a sort of great up, uproar and people were terribly sad about this and the New Crusade was preached and they all went West and Richard... Um, you know, helped with the siege of Acre and then negotiated with Saladin, didn't get Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. You can tell this story through totally different eyes, and they're the eyes of somebody who we would not normally consider to be a crusader. You know, a young woman from Yorkshire who went into battle armed with nothing but stones and a pan on her head. And I think that's pretty cool. And what I've tried to do in Crusaders is to draw out stories like that and reshape the narrative of some of these very famous events. Because as a, a great TV director told me a few years ago, he said, you, if you tell a familiar story through an unusual character's single viewpoint, you will often come out with a very new version. Uh, and that strikes me as being um, very sound advice. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So with that in mind, the, the Third Crusade being the one that people are most familiar with, I mean, Richard the Lionheart and Saladin are household names. What aspects of that crusade in your research did you find most surprising? Well, Margaret of Beverly herself was was the the kind of when I felt like I'd hit pay dirt research wise because there is a an account of everything I've just told you um, which when Margaret got back to to Europe she tracked down her brother Thomas the Cistercian monk and either dictated it to him or told the story herself but the account still survives um, it's very seldom used outside the field of what I, I think we call gendering the Crusades you know gendered history of crusading. She very rarely finds her way front and centre into broader, more popular narratives of crusading like the one I've, I've just written. So uh, so I think for me, the important thing with it, with all the different points in this, this epic story, which I've tried to tell, is not going hunting for a sort of killer piece of, you know, archaeological evidence that's going to transform the way we see particular aspects of crusading so much as saying how can we look at these individual stories or the the broader story as a whole through different narrative means how can we how can we get into the lives of characters that aren't normally um, brought into this story how can we how can we see this time through a way that doesn't just spotlight mostly white men from France with beards because those guys have like they really had the stage for quite a long time in this this field of history, as with many other fields of history, and um, 
And what I was surprised by, to you know, to, to answer your question, is how straightforward a task that very often was, because uh, you didn't have to look very long or hard. I didn't have to look very long or hard to find interesting characters through whom we could tell different versions of this story. Men and women, you know, Latin Christian, Greek Christian, Sunni Muslim, Shiite Muslim, uh, Jewish, you know, J- French, German, Italian, you know, the range of characters who have left a, a sufficient mark on the historical record to be useful as as kind of what I borrow a term from fiction called viewpoint characters is huge. And so what I was surprised was really how how little I had to strain to build these kind of stories. And maybe that tells us a little bit about how conventional we can sometimes be in our approach to big historical topics and how easy it is to fall back on the usual way of telling a story. When if you if you just dig a little deeper, there are different ways to do it. I imagine through analysing these characters and really interrogating these characters, you get an understanding of the context a lot a lot better. So you might get more of an image of what Crusader Jerusalem might have looked like because I imagine these people were sort of more within the nitty-gritty of it rather than they weren't necessarily of a higher-ranking class, well, etc. Um, so I mean, I haven't, I haven't gone for a, a, you know, this isn't a, a, a sort of a quote-unquote people's history of the Crusades mm. in the sense that the range was as important as anything. So uh, as well as using characters like Margaret of Beverly, uh, there are characters like, you know, in fact, if we're talking about the, the shape of Jerusalem, then one of the characters I found who was very helpful to tell that story was uh, Melisande, who was queen of Jerusalem in tandem, first with her husband Fulk and then with her son Baldwin III. And she's a fantastic character because... She's very seldom looked at seriously as a ruler in her own right, rather than just a kind of annoying harpy who gets on the nerves of her husband and son. I mean, that's the sadly misogynistic way that she's often presented. Whereas, in fact, this was a very capable, skillful politician, a political survivor, and more importantly, with regard to the, the topic at hand, somebody whose reigns, if we can call them that, bridged a period of enormous and energetic building work in Crusader Jerusalem, which has still left its mark in parts on the city today. You can still see traces of, of um, Melisande's reign if you, if you go to Jerusalem. And so I think that she was a very useful character. However, that said, she's not a, a sort of, you know, a peasant girl scratching around in, in the dirt uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But I think broadly speaking, you're right. Yeah, I think you, you, by trying to be sort of inventive with my choice of characters in telling the story of the Crusades, I've definitely found that I can show this historical event from new angles and in new lights that will make people look at what might be familiar stories for a second time. So the Third Crusade, was that the end of crusading in Jerusalem in the Middle Ages? Well... After 1187, when Jerusalem fell to Saladin, the Third Crusade was raised um, in Europe because Jerusalem had been lost, the Battle of Hattin had been a catastrophe, the greatest relic in Christendom, the fragment of the True Cross, on which Christ had been crucified, had been confiscated by Saladin, as it turned out, never to be returned. Um, So the Third Crusade was raised, and that arrived in the early 1190s. 
it, fa- it failed in its ultimate goal of regaining Jerusalem. However, it succeeded mightily in, uh, in stopping Saladin from wiping out the Crusader states and, and regaining a series of coastal towns uh, so that the, the kingdom of Jerusalem could be reconstructed and, and, as it turned out, with some robustness to it, certainly in the sense that it lasted for another 100 years after the Third Crusade. Jerusalem was briefly regained not by conquest but by uh, diplomacy in the 13th century, 1229, when Emperor Frederick Hohenstaufen visited the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the Holy Roman Emperor. Is that when Edmund Crouchback went crusading? Is that around that time? Edmund Crouchback went crusading somewhat later. Didn't he go with Edward the, what was he, on the Baron's Crusade? Yeah, he was. Roughly, yeah, yeah, right, so roughly the same time. Yeah. But Frederick Hohenstaufen, who was, is an extraordinary character in his own right, excommunicated four times. In fact, was actually technically excommunicated at the time that he was regaining Jerusalem, on, supposedly on behalf of the crown. Spoke Arabic, uh, incredibly interested in, in mathematics and science, and um, wrote a, a sort of defining treatise in the Middle Ages on the art of hunting with birds. Uh, a, a genuinely, you know, his name is Stupor Mundi, and Mutata Mundi, you know, the wonder of the world. Mm. And his personal rapport with the Sultan of the time, the Ayyubid Sultan of Egypt, um, Al Kamil, was directly responsible for the, the regaining of Christian Jerusalem. Um, however, that was a sort of, in retrospect, a, a brief and um, and rather sorry. Uh, swan song because in the 1240s um, as you had the rise of Genghis Khan and the Mongol well the Mongols following Genghis Khan pushing eastwards out of Mongolia sweeping across Asia uh, displacing people as they went one well, one of these displaced peoples were the Khwarezmian Turks who rode in Jerusalem in the early 1240s um, massacred everybody who stood in their way and, and drove the, the you know the Christian rulers out of the city for them as it transpired, the last time during the Middle Ages. Uh, so, yes, you can, tra- you can trace the end of Christian rule in the city of Jerusalem itself to the Third Crusade. However, it's 100 years later, uh, in 1291, when the Crusader states finally fell. So uh, the siege of Acre, when Acre fell to the Mamluks, Turkish slave soldier caste who'd risen up to take control of Egypt and subsequently Syria. Uh, in the twelve, well, from the twelve sixties through to the through to twelve ninety one, swept through the Crusader states, raising Crusader cities and, cr- and crushing everything that stood before them. So the real end of the st- of the story is twelve ninety one with the fall of Acre. Although we can only really say that with historical hindsight, because the dream of regaining the Kingdom of Jerusalem certainly didn't die. You know that that went on for decades, and then the phenomenon of crusading itself outlived. Um, the fall of Acre for centuries and is arguably still a sort of moving force for many people in the world today. Yeah, because popular perception is that the Crusades you know, began and ended in Jerusalem, but how did they progress from then, from that point into the later part of the Middle Ages? After the first, after the first Crusade, and really from the eleven, particularly from the eleven forties onwards, what you start to see is that the idea of crusading begins to mutate so that 
if in the beginning there is the, the, the kind of the quote-unquote Jerusalem crusade and a secondary arena of uh, Christian versus Islamic warfare given crusade status in Spain and Portugal, if that's your sort of initial setup, from the 1140s onwards, you start to see other, bit, other arenas of crusading um, kind of patched on to this. So when the Second Crusade is called, for example, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, great Cistercian abbot and preacher and friend of popes and kings, is petitioned by Saxon nobles who don't want to go all the way to Jerusalem to do their crusading to persuade the pope of the time, Eugene III, to give warfare against pagans in Saxony, you know, on the sort of liminal and boundaries of Saxony. But it's, it's petitioned to persuade the Pope to allow these nobles to go fight pagans on their own doorstep, effectively, rather than travelling all the way um, to fight non-Christians in the Near East. And they get papal approval for that warfare. Now, that's known as the Wendish Crusade. And this is a minor league crusade in a way, but it does mark the, the, the start of what are more broadly known as the Northern or Baltic Crusades. Um, and those crusades go on for centuries. You know, the, the, the wars to either convert or to kill and or to displace the pagan peoples of what we now call Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Finland, begin really with the Wendish Crusade in the 1140s. So that's, that's a sort of third arena of crusading that's opened up in the 12th century. Then, at the beginning of the 13th century, along comes Pope Innocent III, who, after Urban II, is the most uh, influential pope in the history of crusading. And Innocent preached, I think it's seven or eight crusades during Innocent's his Innocent's the warrior pope, isn't he? He's the one. Well, Innocent was a great legalist um, and a great believer in the supremacy of of papacy and, and not a man to tangle with. So maybe most familiar to to students of English medieval history as the Pope with whom King John tangled so memorably in the lead up to Magna Carta and then who uh, annulled Magna Carta on John's um, humble request in 1215. Innocent III was was enormously strident um, and extremely capable Pope who used the phenomenon of crusading and if you like the institution of crusading as a means of expanding and deepening the power of the Roman Church within and without Western Christendom. So Innocent III, for example, uh, preached the Fourth Crusade, which uh, he was extremely irritated to learn, went to Constantinople and sacked it and, and got rid of the Byzantine Emperor, but also preached, although didn't live to see, the Fifth Crusade, a disastrous attack on the Nile cities um, and an aborted attempt on uh, on Cairo in Egypt. Innocent also granted his approval to what we call the Albigensian Crusade, the war against Cathar heretics in southern France. And under Innocent, the idea that the crusade could be turned against Christian rulers began to take root. And certainly as you move through the through the, the middle of the 13th century onwards and, and definitely into the 14th century, you start to see crusading just being bandied about any which way. So Frederick Hohenstaufen, who we've mentioned already in the context of him negotiating the return of Jerusalem to Christian 
rule, was himself the subject of a crusade, the object of a crusade. He had a crusade preached against him because he fell out with, with the papacy. By the time you get to, let's say, the, the sort of la- latter part of the 14th century, I mean, all bets are off. When you have the major schism, the new papal yeah. schism, Avignon papacy, you've got popes declaring crusades anywhere you look. And, you know, your man, John of Gaunt, yeah. is himself a crusader because yes. he goes down, involves himself in Portuguese and Castilian affairs, and both sides are petitioning the pope who, who they're, they're backing or conversely, who is backing them, to grant their wars the status of crusades. Which goes back to the whole idea that actually that was probably in the guise of a crusade when it was probably more of a territorial... Yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. By the time we get to the 14th century, yeah. I mean, crusading has, has burst the bounds. And if you want crusade status, you just go and get it rubber stamped. Mm. Uh, it, has, it has changed almost beyond measure from... It's late 11th, early 12th century origins. And anyone who wants to be a crusader really just has to sort of get the papal seal of approval. And uh, and it adds a sort of pious dimension to one's um, territorial or dynastic wars, um, which it scarcely deserves. The idea of crusading stays current. I mean, I, I've end crusaders in 1492 with the completion of the Reconquista, the removal of the last Moorish Muslim king from southern Spain and the surrender of the Alhambra to the Catholic monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella, 1st of January 1492. Um, but really, the idea of crusading doesn't end there because, you know, you look at Henry VIII and Francis I and Charles V, they're all sort of endlessly talking about how um, if only they can make peace in Europe, then they will be free to go off and fight the perfidious Turk. Um, the idea of crusading is alive into the 15th, 16th century. I mean, even 1798, when Napoleon's off to Alexandria, he stops on Malta to cap, to take Malta from the last of the hospital of knights. You know, a, a crusading order established when Jerusalem was in crusader hands. So the idea of crusading never really goes away. And, and you know, you can even take this story into the 20th century. And, and I was watching... On YouTube, you can see this. A very good film about the First World War made uh, in 1919, I think, called Pershing's Crusaders. And it presents the you know American arrival into the European theatre of the First World War in 1917. I mean, you should see the poster. It is uh, of Pershing presented as a, a kind of Templar-style knight. Eisenhower in 44, before D-Day, was describing this as a crusade. You know, you had all these warnings in uh, back in the First World War when the British arrived, Allenby arrived in um, in Jerusalem. All these warnings from the British government saying, on no account call this a crusade, you know, we really don't want to go there. But as soon as it was done, the British, British Ministry of Information put out a film called The New Crusade. Um, so, th- so, this, so the idea of crusading, very crudely put, as uh, either a war motivated by higher beliefs or more specifically a war that's part of a some sort of cosmic and eternal struggle between the forces of Christianity and Islam is really kind of undying and hasn't really gone away. And there are lots of people, even today, who would consider themselves to be crusaders or the victims slash enemies of crusaders. Do you think it, as a term it's been glamorised? 
certainly glamorized. I mean, if, if you were, and I don't think this is something you would do, Helen, I hope it wouldn't be, uh, but if you decided that you were going to go out um, to train in a sort of ISIS, you know, terrorist camp, and then you would probably very, very likely to be subjected to a sort of inverse glamorization of Crusader, warped Crusader history. The catch-all term for Westerners who are the targets of um, Islamist terror is Crusaders, you know, and and we are citizens of the Crusader coalition. If you if you want to go and read ISIS propaganda sheets, by the same token, you have alt right, far right terrorists like the guy who's accused of and currently awaiting trial for the Christchurch mosque massacres earlier this year. Mm. I, if you feel the need to read his manifesto, which I I, I, I wouldn't, but have. It's full of all this sort of crusader stuff. You know, he's been capital letters. To ask yourself, what would Urban II do? He went in and murdered a bunch of people with his assault rifles daubed with the name of crusader battles. There is this sense among certain people, largely extremists, on, but on both sides, on all sides today, that the world is still to be seen through the lens of crusading warfare and that's quite a troubling concept for those of us who would argue that actually crusading finished in 1492. Mm. So this is a huge amount of historical material that you have compiled into your new book. In the uh, premise of Hidden Histories you must have had to visit some of the places that some of these stories originated from. Where would you recommend, aside from perhaps Jerusalem, etc., that people might be able to visit in well, order to understand it a little bit more? I think, I think we can't accept Jerusalem from this entirely, but I'll give you two recommendations, my two favourite places. One, one's quite close at hand for listeners who are in Britain and one's a little further afield, but I would recommend it for one specific reason. And the first, if you if you want to get a feel for the the broader effects of crusading on the fabric of Britain, let's say, go to London, take a little door off Fleet Street into temp, the Temple, it's what Temple Tube Station is named after, and you'll mostly find barristers' chambers and the inns of court. But among them, you will see the most magnificent church, the the round naved. Temple Church, which was built in the 1180s, consecrated in 1185 by the Patriarch of Jerusalem uh, and was the sort of spiritual hub of what was then a large Templar compound in the new temple. Templars military order set up to defend Jerusalem, this sort of institutionalized manifestation of crusading. And there, although it's been rebuilt and remodeled over the years, you can still really feel a kind of connection with the crusader world. But the second one, if you do find yourself in Jerusalem, Obviously, you have the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which you know Christ's empty tomb is at the heart of. You know, it is, it was the centre of the world, and it was what got all this started, if you like. But I rather favour another point in Jerusalem, which is um, as you come in the Jaffa Gate. I think you take the second left. And there's a tiny little tattoo parlour called um, Razuk Tattoo, and they claim to have been doing pilgrim tattoos, Christian pilgrim tattoos, since the year 1300. Now, whether that's true, I have no idea. It might be 1983 for all I know. However, you go in there, Wazim Razouk, who now runs it, 
will give you a pilgrim tattoo using as the template, the ink template, a stamp which he claims is 500 years old. Not quite Crusader era, you know, high Crusader era, but close enough. And I've got it right on my wrist here say, from, from, my, from my visit to, to Jerusalem. And I, I think... And it's, is it, it's the front page of your... It's a, similar, it's it's of a your... similar design to that that's on the cover of my book. But uh, I've got a sort of lasting mark from my travels to Jerusalem last autumn when I was working on this book. And um, if any of your listeners are there, then I highly recommend it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dan. When is your book actually out? When can people buy it? You can buy it right now uh, if you're in the UK. On the 1st of October, it comes out in the United States. And as always, I recommend it to you unreservedly. Thank you. And we should also mention that your previous book, Templars, does actually go into more detail about the period as well. There's lots of good crusading stuff in Templars too. Great. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.